HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nine times out of ten, when someone is taking the time to break away and do their own thing, it's because they either have a specific point of view or a specific passion that really sort of speaks to maybe not a mass audience, but the customers that I have and the customers at Barterhouse tries to culture and, and cultivate, I think are, are, are those type of people who want that story and feel like if they take a, an allocation of an 80-case made wine, that they've got something special and it's something that only they have or maybe one other person has. So that's kind of what we specialize in. And you know, it may not be business savvy to the nth degree, like we're not making 100,000 cases of Pinot Grigio and you know, flogging them all over New York. But the customers that get wine from us are kind of believing the same stuff we do, which is supporting these small farms, supporting these young winemakers who have a passion for doing it. And, and we supply them with a market and we allow them to get their product out there to otherwise an untapped uh, group of people. Happy New Year and welcome to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you Tuesdays from around 12, I guess, to 12.45. Uh, it's Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, here with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Uh, ready to t- oh, nice, nice. They have new features in the radio today. That's awesome. I love that. That's for the New Year. For all you people listening, those are the New Year sound effects. Uh, call in all your questions, too, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 for all your cooking-related questions, technical or not. And, uh, Jack, I hear we have a caller. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. I have a question about um, using whipped cream chargers for uh, rapid infusions. Right. Um, I was wondering if it could be used to infuse um, and make flavored vinegars. Yeah, I don't see why and, not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've never tried it, but I don't see why not. We've done oils before. Um, uh-huh. You know, so, but just for, you know, for quickly for people who don't know uh, what we're talking about, a rapid infusion is a technique where uh, we take uh, nitrous oxide cartridges, usually in uh, these ISI, these whipped cream makers. So you can look them up under cream siphons or whatever on the or, or whippers on the on the internet. Some people use them to get high. We don't. I don't particularly enjoy the nitrous high. And uh, they, under pressure, basically force liquid into porous items. Then you rapidly release the pressure. The liquid boils out, and uh, and you and you flavor your liquid. And so the 
question, and we, I normally do it with liquor, but the question is, can you do it with vinegar? And I don't see why not. Have you tried it yet? I haven't tried I'm waiting on, a, on my whipper to get here. I just ordered it through a friend of mine in a restaurant, so I'm trying to get it the cheap way through him. Right. Here, here's some, some guidelines. Uh, that Whenever I do uh, water base, and essentially I don't think that the vinegar is going to enhance the uh, solubility too much of most of what you're working with. I don't think uh-huh. it's going to hinder it, but I don't think it's going to help it. So my, in general, when I do water-based work, you're going to have to use uh, probably a little bit more of the product, and you're probably going to have to let it sit a little a little bit longer. Every ingredient that you use has different uh, kind of optimum infusion time. And so, you know, for chocolate, I find it's somewhere like a minute and a half or so. Uh, I mean, it all depends on, on, the, on the product. Some people I know do coffee for, you know, many minutes up to hours. Some people I know even overnight on something like coffee, uh, you know, cold. Um, and so... You're going to have to play with your, your amounts and how long you leave it, uh, leave it in. But I would definitely do it longer than any of the stuff quoted on the blog for liquor. And I would also you know, take heed of uh, the comments that people said that you know, you're going to want to wait you know, uh, you know, many several minutes after you uh, vent it for the flavor to fully develop. Because I think that really is – I don't know why, but I really think it's a real, real phenomenon. Okay, cool. Could I ask one more quick question? Sure. The same line. Uh, what about using them to um, with cucumbers inside of it to kind of make a quick pickle in the charger? Do you think that would work? It does. It doesn't work as well as a vacuum does. Uh, okay. At least I don't think. I mean, I haven't done. I mean, I tested it once. It works. But you know, I I think. Uh, do you have a vacuum machine or no? I do not, no. All right. Well, then it's probably going to be one of the better things you can, you can do. Another way to do those kind of uh, you know, flash infusions, and we call them quick pickles too, but you have to be careful because when you're, when you're pickling, you're actually kind of doing an exchange of fluids. And with, the, with the, all of these rapid infusion techniques, you're basically you're not exchanging any, any fluids, right? You're just injecting fluids into what used to be air holes. So you're going uh-huh. to need a fairly strong uh, flavor base to do it, and you're also going to need um, – you're going to you know, not think – of them as being preserved in any way and they right. also things like cucumbers tend to get floppy because you inject it right away and there hasn't been time for osmosis to kind of uh, start up and for the, the actual cucumber cells to leach out their, uh, their liquid because you're going to put something in that's high in, in salt let's say and, or sugar or both and they, the liquid is going to start migrating out of, the, uh, out of the cells of the cucumber and it's going to start getting uh, floppy so for like really crunchy crisp results you're not going to want to let the stuff sit around a while and it will work uh, if, uh, if you're going to do it that way, though, I would say rather than use it the way that we say, I would make it cold so that uh, uh-huh. it doesn't bubble out as much when you're, when you're, when you're uh, releasing it because the goal is to keep liquid in and not to have it kind of bubble out, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks. I'll post up on the blog with the vinegars if they work out well and let you guys know. No, cool. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it works out for you. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. So uh, on a non-cooking-related note, uh, uh, I, we just spent the last uh, 10 minutes brushing muck <laughs> off of my uh, – off we of did. my we, we. Well, yeah, anyway, <laughs> it turns out that, uh, you know, here in New York City we had uh, some snow. Not a lot, really, by normal standards, but for some reason, like, they decided not to plow it. And Manhattan, they totally cleaned out. So I was like, oh, it's safe to take my bike that I shattered the rear fender on just before Christmas and haven't had time to fix because I'm lazy and stupid. And so then I rode across, and, of course, as soon as I get over the bridge in Brooklyn, it's like – it's like mucky snowmo snowmobiling on my bike, and so like my entire backside is sprayed with muck. That has nothing to do with anything. Okay, uh, on to on to real cooking issues questions. Uh, 
by the way, uh, we had some people ask us how our how our holiday. We were both Christmas folks, so how was our Christmas and New Year's? Excellent. Yours, Nastasha? It was good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not excellent. Not. It was good. Good. Yes. Oh, all right. Okay. Then uh, with that, I will get right to the questions. Uh, so uh, a while back, Thanksgiving time, we had a, a, a question from uh, a listener who asked why he wasn't dead because his mom used to basically take cookie uh, t- cookies, turkeys, and salt them and put them uh, out to in the in the kind of the back porch uh, to kind of cure for a couple days, you know, not in refrigeration. And the question is why why not why not death? Why didn't death ensue? And um, you know, I think it it has a lot to do with kind of the air drying effect that happened on it, and the, the salt levels, and the herbs, and X Y Z. All these things kind of um, you know go to s- stop kind of bacteria from growing on the outside, which is where most of it's going to grow because the inside sterile. Yada yada. Go back and listen to the podcast for the gory details. But um, we had someone uh, write in, uh, Mark Rosenblatt, uh, also from uh, Brooklyn, says that his mom used to do that uh, in Long Island, but not with turkeys. Did it with uh, ducks, uh, and would uh, do the same thing with duck. Uh, and so I will, I, will relate, uh, I will relate what he says. Uh, he said um, he grew up in Riverhead in eastern Long Island in the 50s, and uh, duck farms were plentiful, so his, his mom would cook the ducks instead of turkey and fully prepare two or three ducks two days beforehand and left them to cure outside uh, and uh, wonder why they never got, got sick. Uh, her technique was that she would put whole cloves of garlic inside, which are anti, antimicrobial, uh, rub the, but I, I would never trust it to be antimicrobial, but it is, uh, rub the exteriors of the duck with a thick mixture of olive oil and crushed garlic. Of course, that's actually like poison waiting to happen, could be poison waiting to happen from a botulism standpoint, but prob- you know, probably not. Uh, you know, anyway, I mean, like, you know that garlic oil is one of the, mo- it's, it's like a dangerous, can be a dangerous thing. Anyway, uh, then coated the entire bird in a blanket of coarse, uh, coarse kosher salt, uh, thereby stopping any botulism from happening, and wrapping the duck in wet newspaper, uh, and, um, because you know, he used to deliver newspapers. And so the, the newspaper would dry out, and his brother once ate the newspaper and got really sick. And so his question is, is uh, with the newspaper, the wet newspaper, which does dry out, would that somehow kind of be a, a host for the bacteria and stop it from growing on the duck? I don't think so, because you never want any sort of any kind of host for bacteria if you can help it growing next to something that, that you're going to eat. Like there's no, there's no beneficial protection from the newspaper. Uh, I wonder whether or not the sickness was because of some sort of poison in the ink, like lead or some sort of crazy nonsense in, in the ink. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, but I definitely wouldn't eat the newspaper uh, in the future. But the newspaper, even if it's wet, if it's placed against a lot of kosher salt, you shouldn't get too much bacterial growth on it. I think the salt is really what's... Uh, by the way, these ducks were rinsed very thoroughly after they were, uh, after they were um, cured, before they were cooked. I shouldn't think that the newspaper would help, but it is interesting that your brother got sick. I wonder whether... You know, who knows? Poison, maybe? What do you think? But yeah. if he knew it, if it was a GI situation, it was a GI. But very interesting. Thank you for writing in. Uh, okay. Now, a question about venison. Um, hello. Hope you had a good holidays. We did. Uh, this is from Andy. He says uh, he was lucky enough to, to take down a deer. Uh, he's a bow hunter, and he took down a deer this year. Uh, and he's elbows deep, he says, in venison, and he's psyched about it. He patched together a circulator, a DIY circulator. The uh, circulator, you know, is what we use to cook things at very uh, accurately precise temperatures, usually in a water bath, but sometimes in fat or oil. And uh, he wants to do a boneless venison loin as his first big meal out of it. And then are there any differences in the t- uh, temperature or timing for this as opposed to beef? Uh, and he's thinking 
speaking about 55 degrees Celsius for about an hour or a little longer. Any thoughts? Uh, Andy, uh, I think that sounds about right. Uh, that's just about the right temperature, uh, even, a, even a, a shade lower, like 54.5 or something like that for a tenderloin, usually in beef. I should think that venison would be about the same. They, the trick with venison in general is I don't know how old uh, the animal you got was, but if there's any sort of tendency to a livery taste in the meat at all, um, which there shouldn't be in the loin, but you know, in other cuts of the venison, you're definitely going to not want to cook it for uh, too, too long, or those livery notes can be accentuated. Sometimes, like when we cooked yak for a long time, uh, those livery kind of notes, gamey notes, actually kind of, I think, worked with the, with the, uh, you know, with the meat, uh, but I don't know that you necessarily want that in the venison. Um, the only other question is, is that some meats can feel tender, uh, but then, you know, eat, when you cook them, they're tough, even at these low, low temperatures. But I should think that uh, a venison loin isn't going to be that tough. I would cook a small piece of it uh, at 55 for an hour and see whether you like it. I wouldn't go much longer because if it does cook like beef, which I'm assuming it, it probably will, uh, then it's going to start getting kind of fibery after that and, and won't be as good. But please write in and tell us how it is, and I'm curious to hear how your homemade uh, circulator uh, works out. Okay. Um, we had a, uh, another question. Uh, this is an anonymous question. Uh, he said, why does an egg that we stored in a mason jar with white truffles not coddle properly? The yolk was cooked perfectly, but the white didn't set up at all. The egg was not very old. If anything, it was only around a week old. Jeez, I've, you know, I've never heard about this. I've done a, uh, I did a preliminary uh, you know, web search uh, you know, and scientific literature search. I couldn't find any sort of active principle in, um, in you know, truffles that would stop an egg white from setting my only theory is, is that is it was it was it stored at room temperature which would accelerate the breakdown of the uh, of the white to a thin white and make it so it doesn't set as nicely in a coddle preparation but other than that i can't see why uh, a white wouldn't set whereas the yolk would because typically the you know typically the uh, the white would set much earlier white would set start setting uh in and around 60 degrees celsius at 140 uh and be you know basically custardy nice set at around 62 degrees celsius uh, you know, and then the egg wouldn't start setting, the yolk wouldn't start setting up until, uh, you know, it would be runny at 62 and would start setting up at 63, get creamy and then get, um, you know, get really firm, uh, around 65 or so. Now, you know, uh, there's, there's so many recipes for truffled, uh, omelets that I, I'm, I'm curious, it's gotta be some sort of weird something going on. Like was the mason jar at room temperature? I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything. Anyway, uh, but I, I will definitely ask around, and if any of our readers have heard anything, please uh, please tell us. The other interesting point that uh, this anonymous caller brings up is that uh, they cook udon noodles at salad for a brunch, uh, and uh, they toss it in uh, Meyer lemon vinaigrette. They had some left over, and so they decided to dehydrate it and then puff it, and they noticed that the ones that have been soaking in vinegar uh, seem to puff more than the normal ones that had just been cooked and, uh, and, and you know blanched and left out and tried. And um, so is there any question, uh, why would they puff bigger with the acid. And I have no idea, actually. Uh, it's interesting. I did a preliminary research on that, and I couldn't find anything specifically with acid and puffing. But uh, it might be possible that there's some sort of effect. I mean, acid obviously weakens gluten, but I don't know if it's going to weaken gluten in products that have already been cooked or not. So if you if you somehow are weakening the gluten structure and the, and the udon hadn't been completely overcooked, because remember, when I puff anything, I overcook the bejesus out of it. So perhaps there's some sort of weakening there, and perhaps that it only works on wheat versus, uh, on wheat-based noodles versus, for instance, puffing uh, like a tapioca starch or something like that. That would, be the, that would be the kicker. If you did a test and you said, okay, look, 
I'm going to do a buckwheat noodle. Of course, that has I'm going to put wheat in that too. If I'm going to do like tapioca or some other kind of noodle and puff it with an acid and see whether that also works. Then if, if it also puffs more with an acid in that situation, then obviously it's not the gluten. But I hope this anonymous uh, reader will uh, give us some more information because I'd, like I'd like to experiment on this more. I love observations like this. Maybe we'll, learn, maybe we'll all learn something, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we have a caller. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Dave. This is Colin Gord down in D.C. Howdy. I called in a couple of weeks ago asking about, uh, you know, possibly using some Pectinex to clear up some sweet potato. Yes. Things. Have we talked about that? Because we ran some tests. I couldn't get it to work, even with a centrifuge. Did you get it to work? Um, so I got – basically, I've been toying with it. I have never uh, – like, I've seen a lot of interesting things that, you know, it weren't, wasn't what I was going for, but now I'm calling in to – like maybe get some tips on where to go from here. All right. So, so, right, so what was your experience? So what I did is, uh, so what is that? Sorry. What do you, yeah, what did you do? Tell me what you did. All right. So what I did was, I mean, first thing I did was ran just the sweet potatoes through. Uh, my roommate had a champion juicer, so that was perfect. Uh, you know, I, I, I had never juiced anything that was like a tuber before, but it was, uh, or, you know, so I wasn't expecting a whole lot because they're not like, nice and juicy seeming like an apple but still got like maybe 60 percent yield that's which pretty is good pretty pretty sweet it's pretty good from, at least compared to what i was expecting right and then um so once you have the juice uh you know i had it in a glass jar right? i saw and you could see that there was a lot of starch settling out right you get like a white starchy and, powder at the, at the yeah, bottom you get, yeah. well the funny thing is you get like a white starchy powder and then stuff that is kind of like acts like starch, but is also more like orange, right. like the potato. Right, like so that mixed that layer. The cells yeah. were still kind of adhered to some. St- I don't know. Right. Uh, fr- I, I know what you're talking about. We had the same thing happen. Then what'd you do? Then, all right. Then first time, I just hit it with some additional amylase, some additional. Uh, I can't remember if it was alpha or beta. Mm. Whatever well, from, you get from it, a brewery supply. Amylase. Yeah, from the home, like at homebrew stores, they sell a little. I think they're mixes. I think they're actually mixes of alpha and beta amylase, but okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look it up. But yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then, I don't have my note. I don't have my notes in front of me, but then I, you know, put it in, sealed it up in a mason jar, put it in a circulator bath to a kind of lower, lower mashing temperature to try to convert a lot of the starches over to sugars because it was going for like a sugary syrup to. Uh, simmer down into a caramel. Right. Right. And uh, how much of the starch did so, he, did you agitate it? Um, no, I left it sick because I wanted the starch to settle out to the bottom, so I yeah. could kind of decant the stuff off. Right, but the amylase, if you agitated, would actually help break down some of the starch. No, although maybe not yeah, if it's yeah, locked. Yeah, yeah, that would be. That'd be a good plan, yeah. I mean, like, well, what, I, what I would do, like, like before we go further, because I want to hear the rest of it, what I would do in the, the next test, I would cook this starch out a little bit, then cool it, then add the amylase, because then you could burst it. Because the amylase might have, if you have intact cells in there, the amylase is going to have trouble getting to the uh, getting to the starch, maybe, unless it's been cooked out yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. More. Yeah. What kind of temperature range would you say for 
that first step. Ooh, I don't know. I'd have to go look at my. You know, a good book is the uh, e- is like for starches in general and pasting and all that is uh, and all this is Egan Egan Press has a book on Egan starches. Press, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they're great. They're a great series of books. That all of those. Yeah, uh, yeah. Books. I got the Hydrocolors one a while back. Yeah, their starch sweet. books pretty good. Their starch books good. Their their nutritive sweetener books pretty good. Um, and you can get them all for ninety nine bucks online. Actually, uh, if they still run that deal, it's hard to find, but you can get them all. So okay, so, so then what do you do? You, you settled it out, and then uh, that did what? What what the stuff taste like? Well, well. So actually, the interesting thing was, uh, you know, I had left it to mash out for a good long time, just to, you know, kind of. Uh, I mean, partially because I didn't come back for a day, and unfortunately, what had what had happened is the water bath had evaporated below the temperature probe uh, so it ended up just boiling the hell out of that shit first but, rule first rule first yeah. rule of running a circulator folks out there in in internet land is always always cover your circulator so that you don't especially on a long cookout to not evaporate all your liquid off it's a classic classic uh, problem yes well the, you know, the good news is is that you'll never do that again oh yeah <laughs> yeah i'm just glad i cut it in time before i burnt you know, burn out the heating coil or anything, but, 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 but the magic thing is that uh, it looks like this boiling, this like boiling step at the end has caused the kind of sugary, syrupy water to separate out in a way that I have not been able to replicate since. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I figured, what, it was just sort of setting the starches and sort of at the bottom there. Uh, yep. And yeah, that was the only time that I was able to get a very nice kind of uh, translucent caramel out of it. The, okay, this is very interesting to me. Uh, the, the you got to try to replicate it. I had the same thing happen once. The worst thing in the world is when you're cooking and you do something wrong and you don't and you ha- don't aren't able to like you know replicate it and you love the result. This has happened to me. Yeah. I made a durian caramel by accident in a pressure cooker that was incredible. Like had no sulfur note. It tasted like durian but wasn't offensive to like the most mild Western noses. Awesome, rich, not burnt. And we went through probably 15, 15 durian trying to get that back, and we've never been able to do it. So I wish you better luck with the def- – we should try some. We'll try some of the beta amylase and alpha amylase to see that we can replicate. But I definitely wish you more luck. Uh, in replicating it, and uh, you should call back again and tell us uh, tell us what happens. We're, right now, though, we have to. Go, I'm t- being told we're that I have to go to a break. break. We're going yes. to a break, but call back and tell us what happens, Colin. We're we're interested in it. cooking issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good. Feeling good. so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother? Right. Hey, jam. You're getting down. We're gonna have a bunk good time. 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 Let's take them up, Fred. We gotta take you high. Uh. Oh. All right. You wanna do it again? You wanna do it again? Huh? 
And welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in all your cooking questions to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128. Jack in the control room tells me that we might be able to go a little bit long today because we had some questions come in over the New Year's break. By the way, speaking of New Year's break, I know, I know we have not been writing a lot. When I say we, I mean me. have not been writing a lot uh, in the blog recently. I just wanted to spend some time with my family <laughs> over the holidays, all right? No, uh, we're going to get back on the stick, and we'll, you know, I'll, be, I'll be writing some stuff real soon, we hope. So please, no, no, uh, no hate mail about how I haven't been writing anything. Um, okay, uh, speaking of uh, sweet potatoes, we had a, you know, Colin called in with a sweet potato question. We have a, an actually a question about sweet potatoes, uh, which is good. And it comes from uh, Eliza Kwanbeck, and she writes, My boyfriend and I have been having an ongoing discussion about the difference between taro, tapioca, manioc, yam, and sweet potato. Uh, they spent a summer backpacking through Southeast Asia, taking cooking courses in every country we pass through. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, it does. I'd like to do that. Uh, and in Malaysian Borneo, we took a cooking class and made berber cha-cha, which sounds awesome. I've never had it or heard of it, but I'll eat anything called berber cha-cha, which is a coconut yam taro porridge flavored with pandan leaves. I love pandan. We, uh, pandan is a leaf that has a little bit of a kind of a vanilla taste for those of you that don't know you can get it in uh in southeast asian groceries to thai groceries uh, you know anything like that and um it comes usually frozen and sometimes the frozen one can have a little bit of a fishy taste when it's thawed out but it's used in a lot of dessert preps and we uh used to make a really good uh sugar cookie out of it instead of vanilla we would we basically uh blitzed the uh, leaves with butter heated it and decanted the butter off and used that to make cookies and and they were like this amazing green color like pistachio green color and with a, like that pandan, pandan flavor that you can't you know really replicate without the leaves because I think the extracts are crap you know the flavorings anyway uh, that's off topic but delicious um, and so uh, that, you know she basically got into a bunch of arguments about uh, you know what these different things are what the different starches are where they come from etc 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 all right uh, uh, Eliza first of all uh, this is giving me a great opportunity to pump a, a series of books that I think everyone should own as many of as they can and it's the uh, Brooklyn Botanic Garden that is Brooklyn Botanic Garden series uh, and they have a series of small guides that are all really really cheap you can get them online actually if you go to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden if you become a member they send you like 10 for nothing and they're like you can get them for like 5 to 12 bucks I mean, they're amazing. But the one I'm going to talk about today, it, and it has snappy titles, which I really enjoy. Uh, I, lo- I like a snappy title. It's called Buried Treasures, Tasty Tubers of the World. Uh, and, it, and what I like about these guides is, is you, you can read them kind of in one you know, quick session. Uh, you know, I don't know, when you're sitting on the hopper or something. It's only like 100 pages, a lot of good pictures, a lot of good information. Um, and so uh, I read it this morning, not on the hopper, please. Uh, and uh, but I recommend that series. They also have a really good uh, book called "The Best Apples to Buy and Grow," uh, etc. But here, here is my, and they have a lot of really r- more rare, interesting tubers, corms, rhizomes, everything in that book that you can go take take a look at. But here's the quick breakdown. I know I'm going to get some of this wrong, so please no hate mail. You can just correct me uh, if I'm wrong. The sweet potato, uh, which I can't possibly pronounce the Latin names. It's like it. it Ipomoea batatas. I can't pronounce it. Batatas. Anyway, sweet potato uh, is 
is from uh, South America. It's been cultivated for many, many years, like 10,000 years. Um, you know, it went early pre-Columbian times, probably to Polynesia. And then, uh, you know, after, you know, the kind of, you know, great Columbian seed exchange or whatever, uh, went uh, the other way uh, over to Africa. It's grown all over the world. They grow a lot of it in China. It's fed to pigs. They make starch uh, for noodles. It's also, it's, it's you know, incredibly delicious. Uh, the white varieties of it are still just a sweet potato. The uh, boniatos are still, they're just sweet potatoes. They're the same uh, style, different cultivars. They're, they're less sweet. That is a sweet potato. Everything, usually in a New York, in a, sorry, in a United States supermarket, things labeled yams are actually sweet potatoes. Luckily, the U.S. government requires it somewhere on the box. It also say sweet potato, even if it says yam. Okay, the actual yam uh, Dioscorea alata is from East Asia, uh, but it made it to Africa well over a thousand years ago, and then from there to the West Indies. Uh, you know, um, in I guess the, the 1500s or so. There's many, many varieties of it. The yam is, is distinct, right? The yam, uh, unlike the sweet potato, which can be eaten raw, the yam uh, has to be cooked. Okay, you have to you have to cook a yam. You can't you can't eat it raw. Um, I don't really know much about yam starch. I think most of the stuff that I see as starch is. Uh, Sweet potato starch, which is entirely different from potato starch, entirely different from uh, tapioca, manioc, cassava starch. Okay, so that's kind of sweet potato versus yam. Now, taro, right? Uh, Colocasia esculenta, right? You have to they, like you have to cook uh, that stuff because it contains some calcium oxalate. I think uh, it's a corm. It comes from India, but went to Southeast Asia a long, 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 long time ago. Right? Uh, that's what taro chips are made out of in Hawaii. That's what poi is made out of. Taro cakes you get in uh, in China. Like that's all taro, right? There's a different thing called giant taro, right? That's from Sri Lanka that w- uh, went uh, also to the Pacific Islands. Also needs to be cooked because of uh, calcium oxalate. And, and if you eat it, it'll like it'll taste like like thousands of, of sharp little needles, and it's very unpleasant. So and, you know it's very you know don't want to do it. You want to cook it to, to get rid of it. Sometimes you want to cook it. You want to cook it. I think that's with a pinch of baking soda helps uh, neutralize. It, I think, but I'm not sure. Uh, I don't. I don't do do a lot of work on it. Okay. Then, uh, kind of the answer to taro from uh, the South America is uh, yaudia, right? It's the same family as taro, and so basically. Like uh, Yaudia and Taro, you can kind of interchange uh, those, those two things, right? Uh, so anyway, so that's that. Now, an entirely separate ball of wax is the, – and these are all the same damn thing, just from different, different names, different places. Manioc, cassava, tapioca, and yuca, right? Those are all uh, Manahat Esqualenta. I, th- I can't pronounce any of this, so please don't come back on me. Th- th- these are like, you know, uh, relatively recent, i.e. like 1,000 BC. Uh, they're all – this from South America, but it's spread all over the world. You, like now there's two kinds, right? There's the, there's the, the, the sweet kind and then the not sweet kind. And, and they all contain certain amounts of compounds that turn into cyanide. So you, you definitely want to uh, cook them. But the, all the varieties usually you buy in the supermarkets now, um, you know, you can just cook them and, and eat them. You don't need to like s- grind them, soak them overnight to get rid of the cyanide compounds and wash them and then, you know, and process them. Uh, but in the, old, in the old days you did or, or um, you'd die. Anyway, but uh, most of the varieties that are cultivated now uh, you don't have to do that. And so that's where tapioca starch comes from, which is what they make the little pearls out of in bubble tea, to the best of my knowledge. And it's also uh, what, um, you know, tapioca starch is very interesting. It's a different shape starch from uh, many other starches. It's, it's got a characteristic, what's called kettle drum shape. You're going to want to look, uh, a good source for different starches is National Starch Corporation and or the International Starch uh, Council, I think. It has a website. And the Egan Press mentioned earlier a book on starches, which you can get from the American 
Association of Serial Chemists uh, has a good stuff on um, tapioca starch. But tapioca starch, aside from its interesting kettle drum shape, uh, is world-renowned for being very bland. So it doesn't uh, cause a lot of flavoring uh, to you know to things because it's bland. Uh, it also uh, is used in puff snacks because it has very good uh, expansion properties because it has a nice uh, amylose amylopectin breakdown. Uh, so you know. Anyway, also, those things, yucca, manioc, uh, cassava, tapioca, you'll often find a thick coating of wax over it because if not, they kind of turn to crap pretty quick in the, uh, in the supermarket. So how was, how was that, Nastasha? That, that was very informative. Quick, quick rundown? Yeah. Make any, make any dang sense at all? It did. Did? Uh, all right. Let's take another break before oh. we get back. All right. So listen, we're going to take another commercial break, but call in your questions too, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking you Issues. Good. You feel good? Much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel like I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, Jay! You're getting down. Look at him! We're gonna have. We're going to talk. This is Cooking Issues. Welcome back. 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. We actually had a question about our songs, and we're going to uh, talk about them later. Mm-hmm. For those of you that actually know that song already, which, uh, oh, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. Uh, okay. So we had a question about carbonation, one of my favorite things. I've never actually written about it on the blog. Uh, I guess just because most of the research I've done on carbonation, I did kind of so, so long before I had the blog that I just never bothered uh, writing about it. But, you know, maybe someday, if I ever get the time, we'll write a, uh, a, a primer on it. Um, again, I will write a primer on it is what I mean to say. Uh, so the question is, do you have any thoughts about the uh, EC slash ISI, like in both their – Correct, but I think they're moving towards Nastasha. Which one of they're moving towards? EC. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the EC twist and sparkle carbonation system? It seems like it solves a lot of the problems you have with soda siphons, and it's cheaper and smaller than the soda stream, uh, but still um, does use small cartridges. Long term, I'd like to get a system with a twenty-pound CO2 tank, and and this is from Sam. And yes, Sam, you should get a twenty-pound CO2 tank at the very minimum, a five-pound CO2 tank, Sam minimum. Anyway, uh, but I'm a student and I'll probably be moving a few times in the next few years, so it's not practical to purchase at the moment. Uh, I'm also considering as a gift for my parents who buy fizzy water by the case, but are not going to be interested in driving around with big CO2 tanks. Hey, they're not that big, Sam. They're not that big. I live in a tiny, tiny apartment, right? I live in a, an 800 square foot apartment with uh, two rambunctious kids, uh, and and I have not one, but two 20-pound CO2 tanks in there. Anyway, I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying you can do it. I know you can do it, Sam. Anyway, uh, a couple more questions I can't seem to find the answers to. How much water can I carbonate with the 8-gram cartridges the system comes with? Are the cartridges proprietary? Can they be purchased more cheaply from someone besides uh, EC or in bulk, and how well does it work? Okay. 
Uh, I can't tell you that you can buy it from someone else, but all of those cartridges are uh, pretty much uh, pretty much the same. Um, EC's, you know, guarantee. I shouldn't say this. I'm going to get my my butt handed to me by the EC Corporation because I'm friends with those guys. But uh, you know, they claim that their cartridges are all very accurately weighed out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're very pure. You can only get really one bottle of uh, water out of the eight gram cartridge, and therein is the rub. So for me, it's more of for bars uh, who don't want to invest in a carbonation system to maybe do drinks. And for me to really carbonate a drink, it's going to take two cartridges because I have to blast off some of the uh, stuff. Uh, and so I'd, I'd hate to say this. But I think if you're going to make a lot of seltzer at home uh, and you want a, a smaller system, that you know it's going to cost a lot very quickly to run through cartridges if you're actually drinking a lot of soda water. And uh, EC is going to come tear my head off. But I would definitely, in that situation, if you don't want to go for a, a five or twenty pound CO2 tank, I would go for the Soda Stream. I'm going to get my butt handed to That's me. That's okay. You're telling the truth. But I would go for the soda stream. I know many people that have it who don't want to have the five twenty pound CO two tanks. You get a, a lot more charges out of the um, out of the refill because um, you're just gonna go, you're gonna run through CO two cartridges like the end of the world is coming with uh, with the twist and sparkle. Now the advantage of the twist and sparkle is that you can do liquor and other things in it that they tell you with the uh, with the soda stream that you can't do because of foaming problems. I, I've never I don't own a, a soda stream, but I, I'm thinking that I. Can modify one to do drinks like pretty cheaply just by adding a little extender tube to it, but I would definitely consider getting the. Um, you can get the starting level um, soda stream. I think for under a hundred dollars, like seventy nine dollars, and I think it'd pay for itself pretty quick in terms of uh, in terms of chargers. But uh, I've probably just cut off my nose despite my face. We probably will never work for EC again. But uh, Sam, those are my those are my feelings. Uh, it oh it works it works fine uh, as long as you chill it. Uh, really, really chill your li- uh, liquids. Keep your levels uh, accurate. But I usually put two chargers in to really get uh, a really strong charge in it because I like it really, really, really fizzy. Uh, and so I really feel like you're going to blast your cartridges with it. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this on air because I'm going to get I'm going to get in trouble. Anyway, uh, uh, here we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm calling from San Francisco. Happy New Year to you, Dave. Happy New Year. Um, thank you. Uh, so I have two questions, um, which are unrelated. Um, I'm hoping you can answer um, them both. Um, so I'll, I'll ask them both uh, right now. Um, and the first question is regarding um, distillation. I've noticed um, that there's a lot of kind of distillation equipment. I guess I'm sort of interested in making my own um, kinds of essential oils. I bought um, a number of essential oils from um, from Mandy Aftel in the past. Um, and now friend of, of cooking like, oh, issues, I by the way. Should pardon me. Friend of cooking issues, by the way, Mandy Aftel. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and um, have uh, have um, and I've used them, and they're they're really delicious. And so now I'm interested in sort of making my own. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of setup you might recommend to um, begin to uh, start um, doing making my own essential oils and um, hydrosols. So that's question number one. Um, and the second question um, has to do with pectin. Um, um, which is I've tried m- making my own um, pat to free and I haven't had a lot of success. 
um, and I've used a couple of different um, supermarket pectins um, over the counter. Um, I've done some reading, and one was said that Serto, which was the liquid kind, I tried, and um, that was supposed to be okay. And the other was like Pomona's or Ramona's or something, something like that, um, and that that was supposed to work. But I haven't had any success. Um, so I'm hoping that you might be able to um, give a little, help me with that and give a little one-on-one on, on pectins All right, so and some sources for getting them. So let's go in reverse. Uh, what's your problem with it? Um, not setting. Huh. Not setting. And uh, you're, tr- you're making sure that your acid levels are high enough and your sugar levels are high enough? I mean, the main thing with pectins. I mean, I used it for, like, kumquat, you know, so it, it was pretty high acid. And, but what about the sugar levels? It was still pretty high. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, maybe, and I boiled it for a while. Right. You're gonna. You, you, I don't. I don't have off the top of my off my head what the the numbers are, but pe- regular pectin in order to set needs very high solids level, and uh, you know, which means like a lot of lot of sugars and also acids. Kumquat should be acidic enough to set it. Uh, mm-hmm. Then the question is, is how high is the solids level, which is going to be then determined by the temperatures. Now, presumably, you're taking the temperature high enough that um, your solids level is going to be high enough. That, that could be a source of the problem, not taking the temperature high enough. Or if you took the temperature high enough, then adding another liquid that's going to um, dilute it back down below the solids level where it's going to set properly. Um, you know, the, the the different pectins you can get a lot of times are going to be apple based or citrus based. Um, it, it, I don't I don't know any of the store brands. I've never used any any of them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I tend to use more of like the the weirder ones for kind of hydro, hydrocolloid applications because that's what people ask me for. And those ones you can use in lower solids and with lower sugars, but they require things like calcium to set. That's one of the pectins they use for kind of low sugar jams and things like that. Those are like you know. Um, those are different kinds of like like low low methoxyamide LMA. You might hear, hear a call. What pectin. kind of calcium do you or how do you recommend adding the calcium to those? Oh, you just add like you know like a like a gluconate. I use calcium lactate gluconate. Okay, it's t- 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 it doesn't require that much. And in, 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 there's a there's low methoxy pectin. The problem is it's very sensitive to calcium levels. So that if, you know if you put too much, it's a problem. Put too little, and there's low methoxyamidated, which is like less. It's, more, it's a little more bulletproof. But regular pectin should work unless you don't have a solids content high enough, which means you're like not cooking to a high enough temperature. This is the only thing I can think of. Um, when you say solids content, what 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 do you mean by that? Uh, so in other words, like the you know the, your jelly is a certain percent. Let's just break it. Forget all the flavors, right? There's acid, whatever, blah blah blah. But it's a certain percent sugar and a certain percent water, right? And so right. you you need to have the solids content, i.e., sugar content, high enough for the pectin to gel properly. I mean, that's kind of oh, like that's what pectin needs. It so the the two classic things to go wrong with with pectin based things are you don't have enough. Uh, the, the solids levels aren't high enough. The sugars aren't high enough, or <clears throat> the acid levels not high enough. And those are the two kinds of things that you always want to want to look to first. Now, uh, wait, what was the first question again? Because I, I had an answer to it in my head. It now. has to do with distillation and essential oh, yeah. oils. Okay. Now, a lot of people want to use like the stuff that I have, like a rotary evaporator, uh, all the kinds of things for distillation for essential oils. Too much money. Well, not too much money. Yes, also, but also not effective. What you want to do for that is steam distillation, right? And so in a steam distillation setup, uh, I mean, in, that's what I would buy. I've never done essential oil distillation, but I've considered buying a rig for it. And the good news is they're cheap and they're fairly effective. And what you're, what you're doing then is you're packing 
a column with uh, your product and you're you're basically boiling and steam is going through it, rupturing the cells and the steam is carrying with it the essential oils, recondensing on the other side. The oils will float to the top or some to the bottom, depends. Some are actually heavier than water, right? And the stuff mm-hmm. and the stuff that is left over that's water is the hydrosol. And so it's actually um, you know, the main problem is your yields usually are quite low, but it's definitely something that, that can be done. It's legal. It's not illegal to do because you're not using uh, uh, alcohol for it. You're using uh, water. And so I would go definitely check out uh, steam distillation. You should be able to get a whole small rig to test uh, on eBay the parts for it for under uh, 100 bucks. You just want to make sure, you know. Well, I saw that there were some that were vacuum uh, distillation. Um, there was a couple of rigs that were, you know, under two hundred bucks for for, um, for essential oils. It didn't say. I mean, they were sort of chemistry type of type of equipment. I just typed in um, steam distillation, uh, vacuum steam distillation, and it, there was a couple things that popped up on on Amazon. Actually, yeah. um, and, and, I mean they're not they're not rotary evaporators, but would would in in that case could you see you know uh, it being done under vacuum being being helpful? Uh, well, I, I think it might. I've never done the test, but I think it, it might actually be detrimental. I mean, I can I get oils across when I'm doing rotovap distillation sometimes, but it's very small quantities, and they're dissolved. Obviously, they're dissolved in alcohol because I'm doing it in alcohol, and a lot of these things are soluble in alcohol to a certain degree. Uh, and I'll, I do get ouzo kind of effects uh, when I water stuff down and some stuff, so you know there is oil in there, right? But. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that the high temperature of the steam, which is helping to rupture the cells, is a is a benefit for uh, the steam distillation. And I think that you might not uh, get uh, that kind of action if you put it under a vacuum. Because the main thing a vacuum is going to do for you is lower the temperature at which everything boils. Now you can get a more gentle result that way, but I don't think you're going to get um, <clears throat> I don't think you're going to get a high enough yield of uh, of essential oil to really have it be worthwhile. I don't know. Now you could try that. You know. I, the one thing for essential oil extraction that I've tried only once or twice but haven't really had success with is uh, butane uh, extraction, which is used mm-hmm. by uh, potheads for doing um, for you know making honey oil out of uh, out of uh, swag weed and uh, uh-huh. you know, and I have it and the honeybee is the extractor they use for that and I, I I've tried it once and I wasn't able to get a good result but. That's another thing I like to try, but I would definitely go for a regular standard uh, steam distillation rig, uh, which is pretty cheap, and I think you're going to get good results. I haven't, in other words, I haven't done enough experimentation to figure out how to do it at a low temperature. Do you know what I mean? Okay, but, got it. And, and the ones that are produced aren't really produced at a low temperature unless they're supercritical fluid CO2 extracted stuff anyway, and that's beyond most of our reaches, mine included. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, sounds within within my price range and, and worth uh, experimenting with. Definitely. And uh, write back or call us and tell us how it works, all right? I will, Dave. Okay, thanks a lot. All Bye. right. Bye. Um, okay. Uh, so Jack, should we go to another one or should I just finish out uh, our questions? What do you think? Should we go to another break or should I finish out my questions? No, keep going. Yourself. Keep going? Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, okay. So Ken, who wrote us about the uh, Araby, uh, oh, the Arab, Aeropress, the Aeropress coffee. Um, he uh, wrote back uh, just basically talking to us about the Aeropress. The Aeropress, for those of you who know, was invented by the guy that invented the Araby. And um, it's basically uh, a piston that you put coffee in and then you apply pressure to the piston and you force uh, the water through the like a puck, a brewing puck. And it makes basically supposedly a very high quality of uh, like a mocha-style coffee, not true espresso. Um, and then uh, – 
But um, Ken writes that there's this interesting thing. He says some AeroPress power users dramatically increase the danger or the drama of using an AeroPress by, and they're only forty bucks. We got to order one. I, I, I meant to make a mental note to order one before I showed up on Amazon, so I could say I've ordered it. Did someone say they were going to let us borrow theirs? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, some AeroPress power users dramatically increase the danger of using AeroPress by brewing with the machine upside down and using a polyester or metal metal filter instead of the paper filter to take full advantage of the bloom, the oil, you know, the coming out coffee oil, uh, that has uh, some yummies in it. And you can preserve them by brewing upside down and flipping the device over on end. Uh, I suspect at least some people understandably conflate bloom with crema or maybe the benefits of crema. And very interesting. I hadn't thought about this. And basically the point is, is that let's say you're a – let's say you are a – um, a French press person, right? So you take coffee and you push. Uh, and th- he points me to a website, which uh, I then I'll just read a little bit from the from the the, the website. Uh, and this is from. I didn't write down the person's name. You know why? It's because I'm an idiot. Oh, Scott Markhart. Anyway, the AeroPress uh, gives its user unprecedented control over brewing variables, yielding a great cup of coffee, but there's trouble in paradise. It has a shortcoming. Fans of the venerable French press will understand immediately because they are accustomed to a cup that offers a complex flavor of coffee's natural oils. They are lost in a paper filtration systems like the AeroPress. On the other hand, many people do not enjoy the fines that a French press delivers in the brew. They embitter the bottom of the cup as they cause overextraction there, and they have a bad mouthfeel. So we're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so what he does is he flips the AeroPress over, runs it in reverse. And I've always had a lot of uh, problems with um, French press in general, one of which is that you can pack the, the, the grounds down at the bottom. The other is that they don't offer temperature control, which is dumb. The only attempt at a temperature-controlled thing similar to a French press was the clover, and that cost like $17,000 or something absurd like that until Starbucks bought them. I don't even know who the heck has them anymore. Anyway, um, so uh, that's an interesting question. So now I am um, mentally this morning spent an hour or so just sitting around thinking about um, I don't know how to make a, a French press slash Araby that had all of the good results that without having you know stuff spraying all over my shirt. So so Ken, there definitely will be more uh, thinking and talking on the AeroPress and its kin uh, in in the future. I'm definitely going to be researching that in the, in the new year. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, now, uh, sorry, folks, uh, flipping through the uh, flipping through the thing. We have. Uh, by the way, if you call in the next ten seconds, I will give you a free pork chop, and really? you will have the last. And I just made that up, but I will. I'll give them a free pork chop. Anyway, um, we had an interesting question, and it's a it's a non cooking related question, and I think I'll uh, round out on that. I'm making sure that I'm not missing anyone uh, else's um, questions. Oh, I am missing someone's questions. Sorry, folks. Uh, we have uh, Howard from Montreal writes in and say he just started listening to the show over the holidays and he's loving every minute of it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, he basically uh, listened to the Berlin show and he was, we talked then about a mixture of uh, sodium chloride and calcium chloride to reduce sodium intake. Uh, and he says that uh, his aunt uses this and, uh, and basically uh, he's wondering whether or not uh, and we were talking about re- re- like adding ions to things to basically increase the volatiles, et cetera, et cetera. And and he was saying, I'll just read it word for word rather than try to paraphrase it because I'm, I'm butchering what he what he's trying to say. So uh, the effects I'm talking about altering the solubility of volatiles, brining meat, bread, all seem to be related to ionic strength of the liquid. The higher the ionic, ionic strength, the more polar the aqueous phase, which in turn drives off organic. Similarly, in high ionic strengths, uh, will alter the tertiary structure of proteins such as gluten and bread. The brining process is slightly different, but the salt is driven into the meat, et cetera, et cetera. 
Assuming this theory is true, any soluble compound should be used instead of salt to achieve these effects. However, I think the shielding effects of salt ions play an important role in the disruption of tertiary protein structure. As such, KCL should be a close substitute for NaCl, although MgCl2 might be preferred in certain situations, but then you run into coagulations due to the divalent uh, cation, um, uh, magnesium's divalent cation. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't have that many thoughts on it, only to say that um, it's not only... um, uh, I I, you know, Howard, I just wanted to read this because I'm not ignoring your question. Uh, I haven't... um, I haven't thought about it, and I don't have enough time to think about it on air right now, right, Nastasha? Right. But I, I will think more about it. Obviously, there's certain things that different uh, cations, for instance, calcium, has specific results with uh, specific uh, in specific systems like hydrocolloids. Sodium uh, has a certain result. But obviously, just shifting the ionic b- balance of whatever you're going to do with is going to mess with the protein structure. Uh, but I haven't thought enough about it to, uh, to, to really know. But yes, I mean, for instance, when you're brining something, actually kind of like 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 polyphosphates like uh, tend to like even alter the water binding protein uh, water binding of protein more than uh, regular sodium like sodium polyphosphates tend to alter the the binding uh, quite a bit more um, so they're not probably all the same but yes they all work somewhat now uh, sorry uh, that's like a long rambling like bunch of stuff from uh, from Dave Arnold in the New Year's having his brain go on fritz in the middle of the radio but here's a question I can answer and it comes from Paul uh, and it's not a cooking related question it's what are the two pieces of music on the Cooking Issues radio show podcast there and it's interesting he thinks it's fish is fish is vodka is the intro is what he said which I love fish is fish it's a great book I, I used to read that to my kids all the time fish is fish uh, uh, and uh, we're going to have a fun, good time, uh, which is the one that is in the middle of the uh, of the show. Uh, and you haven't had much uh, luck Googling the songs. Okay, I'm going to do it in reverse. The, f- the one in the middle is Doing It to Death by James Brown, uh, sometimes called Have a Funky Good Time, but that's not what it is. It's called Doing It to Death. And... Uh, that song was uh, released in 1973, uh, and it's with the JBs, and it's got it's amazing. It's got Maceo Parker, it's got Fred Thomas, and uh, the reason I, uh, James Brown got me through many, many, many years, uh, like late nights in the studio uh, welding at four in the morning. I would crank songs like that to get me kind of like over the hump when you're passing out into your welding mask uh, as you're you know building like large sculptures alone, which you should never do. Um, you should always have someone with you in the shop when you're working. Uh, but doing it to death is one of those songs that you know it's just it's just so tight and he beats on a rhythm so long and it's just a jam and it's just like minutes of this boom jump and so like you know I like that kind of song just keeps me going and it's what's famous for even though we never play it uh, this section on the radio it's famous for a section and songs in in F and in the middle of the song James Brown like says okay we can take it to D, down D, funky D, and then boom, D, bam, they, they get the game. They take it down to D, and it's just an amazing, like it's an amazing transition. And it's like all of other, you know, great James Brown songs is that he can take it to a really high level and then change it, and somehow that goes into an even higher level. I mean, like he's a he's a miracle was dead now miracle worker with bridges like that, and so uh, he was incredibly influential to me uh, from a musical standpoint. And so I had to pick a James Brown song. And we chose doing it, doing it to death. And so you can uh, you can find it uh, find it there. And uh, maybe sometime next time we'll play the the down D funky D mm-hmm. skanking D down D part, which is uh, fantastic. By the way, it, you know. <clears throat> 
I guess it doesn't mean you're a bad person if you don't like James Brown, right? right? No, I, yeah. It, it doesn't mean you're associated with. No, no. but it, it definitely means there is something wrong with your funk motor. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the intro song is a, a little known song by Amos Milburn called Vicious, Vicious Vodka. Although I like Fish's Fish's Vodka quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Amos Milburn, who died in, in uh, 1980, uh, became uh, somewhat popular in Los Angeles uh, after World War II. Um, and he wrote a lot of songs about liquor. Uh, and, uh, you know, Vicious Vicious Vodka is actually not one of his best known ones. But he had his Bad Bad Whiskey is a great song. Um, but a lot of songs about uh, drinking. His, uh, he also wrote a famous song called The Chicken Shack. And he was kind of a contemporary of uh, other people like Louis Jordan or uh, Charles Brown who did some uh, amazing work. You know, Louis Jordan, you might know from Beans and Cornbread or... Actually, not famous. We're just picking food songs. But uh, Amos Milburn, uh, his best-known song is actually not best-known by him, and it's One Scotch, One Bourbon, and One Beer, which you probably know the uh, John Lee Hooker version of and not the Amos Milburn uh, uh, version of. So uh, apparently he did not actually have an alcohol problem, although all of his songs were... like He did another one. I think he did... Um, Milk and water, which is basically means I'm not drinking right now because I'm back on milk and water because the doctor says that my liver will fall out if I continue to drink. So uh, that is vicious, vicious vodka, or in my head now forever, fish is fish is vodka. Uh, uh, come back next week and listen to us. Cooking issues. Got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight Vicious, vicious vodka Oh, you dirty rat Got me on this corner And I don't know where I'm at I had a chance to swap you for a little gin Now when my baby sees me She's gonna bust my head